You're listening to Connection Church's podcast. How are we doing this morning? Woo! Yeah, you guys are alive this morning. So glad you guys are all here. I really don't know how to follow up that video. Uh, Justin's hilarious. I'm not, I'm not nearly as funny as him, but we are continuing our series called Game Time. My name is Cody. I'm the student pastor here at Connection Church. So glad to be with you this morning. Majority of our team is actually in Minneapolis. They're coming home tonight, but they are, they're taking the weekend to be invested in and, and doing some investing of their own into others, even other people of uh, other faiths are getting poured into, showing them how to better reach uh, people of other faiths so that we can come back here and be more effective witnesses in, here, here in Statesboro. So uh, we'll make sure we pray for them when we get started here in just a second. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John 7, 37 through 39. We're going to continue game time. And game time, the whole idea of this series, if you're just now coming in, um, the, whole, the whole idea is about, you know, we, we all are searching for a prize. Sometimes we see game shows, you know, where people come down, come on down, you win this prize. But the idea of this series is that the prize has already been won and it's been given freely to us, and that's Jesus Christ. So that is, that is the prize. Now this morning, if you're taking notes, before we get started, I want you to write down the prize of the Spirit. Prize of the Spirit. That's going to be very important uh, just to remember because that's what we're talking about today is the prize of the, of the promise of the Holy Spirit and that we have uh, access to the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. So John 37, 737 through 39. If you have your Bible, go ahead and get there. If not, we, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one after the services. You can just step, stop by the prayer table and we'll give you a Bible if you do not have one. It's very important to us that you have God's Word in your hand. So 37 through 39, we'll read this and then we'll pray. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Somebody say living water. Living water. I like the sound of that. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth. Lord, we ask that this morning that you just move in this place, move in our hearts, help us be open to what you have to say. Uh, Lord, help us step in according to the spirit as we learn more about who he is and what he does in our lives. Lord, we just lift up our team that's on their way back from Minneapolis. Lord, that they have a safe trip back, that they land safely, Lord, and that what they have learned, they will be able to land back here on their feet and just immediately start sharing their, their experience with others in this community, leading people to you. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, college students, you guys are back. How many college students I got in here? It's a lot of college students. How many of you guys were overwhelmed this week? At some point in time, overwhelmed. One of the interns that is a 212 intern, which is our student ministry, he came in, he goes, this week has been rough. Like that's, that's the common theme is that there's a lot of, a lot of us have been overwhelmed. Now, I'm, I mean, it's pretty obvious that we've all at some point in time been overwhelmed in some capacity. It may be at work, it may be um, at school, maybe at home, but sometimes it's easy just to get the feeling of being overwhelmed, right? There was one time in particular that I remember that I'll never forget where I felt overwhelmed. And it was pertaining to my job and what was taking place was my wife and I had just gotten back into youth ministry. I had been in the financial industry for seven years and we had taken a break of, of ministry, just newlyweds, getting to, getting to know marriage a little bit better. And we decided that we felt like God was calling us back into ministry. So we get back into ministry and I, I, to help bring in a little extra cash, I started working at Lowe's and um, I was there for three months. And I'll tell you why. I am probably the least handy person on the planet. Like 
you hand me a tool, I can't, if it, the only way I will be able to do anything for you is if it comes with instruction and a little Allen wrench. That's about the extent of my handyman skills. And I apologize to my wife all the time because she's like, we should build a table. And I'm like, you should build a table because I, <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. I, I, just, I just don't have that capacity in me. I was working at Lowe's. That was, that was a horrible idea for me. You know, the reason why they hired me was because I could sell and that was part of my job was to help sell, but I didn't know what I was selling. I had no idea. People who come into Lowe's know what they want, know what they're looking for. I had no idea how to help them navigate to it. I had a guy come up and ask me. He says, oh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm looking for a Thompson wrench. And I'm like, Thompson, I just met Phillips and, and Allen wrench. And you're telling me there's another guy? Who, what, who are these people? That was my mindset. I had no idea. So at the end of the, close to the end of my time there, they put me in paint department because I didn't know what else to do. I mean, I was like, look, um, I'm not good with these tools. I'm not a handyman. So they put me in the paint department where my job was primarily was to put a can in the container and press the button that shakes it all up. So needless to say, I was only there for three months, but I felt overwhelmed the whole time. I was calling my dad because he's really mechanic savvy. And I was like, hey, dad, this guy came in asking for this. What does this do? You know, I was like, it was like reading Japanese to me or something. Like I, I, could, I could not understand what these things were. So I was really overwhelmed. And yeah, my time there was, was really, really short, but... Anybody ever had that feeling of being overwhelmed like that? In a position you had no idea what you were doing or why you were doing it or how to even navigate through it? That was a really hard time for me, um, but God did move me through it. And with the text that we're looking at today, God is going to send someone to help us navigate through, through situations when we feel overwhelmed, to help us come alongside of us, to, to convict us, to, to encourage us, to equip us to do what God has called us to do. So the sense of being overwhelmed, we can find hope that the prize that, that Jesus is giving us is the Holy Spirit that will lead us through the time of being overwhelmed. So uh, let's, read, let's read again that 37 through 39 just to wrap our minds around it. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pause there because before we actually understand when Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How many of you guys have read that passage and been like, what? That's such a weird passage when you skim across it and all of a sudden you have this Jesus guy standing up and going, anyone thirsty? I'm right here. It's really, it's really weird when you don't understand the original context. So it says on the last day of the feast, so there's a feast going on. This feast is called the Feast of Booths. Your translation may say Feast of Tabernacles. And essentially what this feast was was it was a time of reflection based on what God had done for the Israelites in the wilderness. Because you remember, they were led by Moses out of Egypt, and then they, by their disobedience, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And they would tabernacle. That means they would live in tents, man-made tents. What, what they would do during this feast is they would build tents. Wouldn't be my favorite feast because I'm not good with my hands, but they would build these tents, and they would tabernacle in them outside of the city, on top of their roofs, or whatever, years after they had been delivered from the wilderness. It was a reminder of God's provision. It was a reminder of, of God's goodness and faithfulness while they were walking around in their disobedience. Even in their disobedience, wandering in the wilderness, God showed up and he provided for them. So this feast was to say, thank you for what you did. It was also to say, Lord, thank you for what you were doing. It was also this feast took place during the harvest. And this, is, this was associated with rainfall and water. So he's saying, so the Israelites are saying, thank you for providing 
water for our harvest. Thank you for providing water in the wilderness. But then there's one more important thing that we need to remember. They were also looking forward to the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them. So this whole feast is about thank you, God, for what you did in the wilderness for us. Thank you, God, for what you were doing with the harvest and providing for us. Thank you, God, and we look forward to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So you have this concept of water in the wilderness. You have this concept of water and rainfall for the harvest. And you have the concept of God pouring out the Holy Spirit, which in the Old Testament a lot of times goes back to the Holy Spirit, is associated with water. So you have this concept of water, and during this feast, there were a ton of different ceremonies. The one I'm focusing on for the sake of time and for the text, so we understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying, is the water rituals. The high priests, what they would do during this feast, big ordeal, they would grab golden golden jar, or golden jugs, actually, go down to the pool of Siloam, which was a pure spring water pure, uh, pool. They would dip it, make it full. The priests would go back up to the temple, and then they would pour the water out on the altar. They'd pour it out on the altar. This took place every day, even up until the last day, the seventh day. They would do this. They would sing psalms. They would, read the, they would read what they had of scripture at the time, but they would pour the water on the altar, and the water would run down the altar, and it would look like streams of water coming down at the feet of the people who were there worshiping. So now we have the context in which Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have rivers of living water flowing within their heart. So now we're, we're drawn into the scene, which is awesome to think about. They're pouring the water. Jesus stands up and he makes this plea. He makes this proclamation. And notice that Jesus up until this point has kept a low profile. Jesus has kept an enormously low profile in John chapter 7. He has said some things and the Pharisees didn't agree with it, so they, they put a warrant out for his arrest. Am I the only one in here that finds it cool that our Lord and Savior had a warrant out for his arrest? Man, that's awesome. Don't read too much into that because he was falsely accused. But nonetheless, when they read the Daily Prophet, pun intended, when they read the Daily Prophet or something, they would, they would see Jesus of Nazareth's name on the list to go pick him up. So, it's, so he's kept a low profile, but he's used this opportunity as they're pouring water out, saying, God, thank you for water in the wilderness. God, thank you so much for the rainfall. And God, we are looking forward to the pouring out of your spirit. They're pouring it out. It's running like streams. And he uses this moment to strategically stand up and say, I'm right here. You guys are consumed in your tradition. This pouring out of the water was not required by God's law. It was a tradition that they had made up. It wasn't a bad tradition. What he's saying is you're focused on the tradition when what you're looking forward to is right in front of you. What you're looking forward to is right in front of you. So my prayer is that we don't miss this as a lot of these Israelites did as we're walking through this. So we are captivated. They're captivated by this human tradition. Jesus shake things up. And in John 37 through 39, what we see is a process. Write this down if you're taking notes. A process and a proclamation. Or no, sorry. Process and a promise. Some of you guys just had to strike through. Dang it. Process and a promise. Because it says Jesus cried out. What that literally means, the Bible was original, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek. And what that literally means in the Greek is he cried out. Like this was a deep plea from the bottom of his heart, top of his lungs, crying out with everything he had, worn out for his arrest. And he says, if anyone here is thirsty, come to me and drink. 
He cries this out. This is a passionate proclamation because he's noticing that people are missing the point. People are missing the point of who he is, what he's there to do. So he says, if anybody thirsts, let him come and drink. So that's, that's the process. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. This is the process that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is involved in for us. Because in order, in order to, to come to know the Lord, we have to first become thirsty. He says, if anyone thirsts, that's the first thing. If anyone thirsts, the Holy Spirit shows up and reveals our thirst. How do you know when your body is, when, when you're really thirsty? Your body tells you, right? Your body tells you, hey, I'm thirsty. And typically what we do is we run to a Coke or, or a, a tea or something like that, that, you know, it tastes good, but ultimately it makes us more thirsty. And that's kind of the illusion here is anyone come, if anyone is thirsty. So the Holy Spirit shows up like your body tells, like your body tells you that you're thirsty. The Spirit shows up and tells you that your spiritualness is dry and you are thirsty. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He shows up and says, you are thirsty. We can't come to this conclusion on our own because naturally we reject God. That's what we do. We reject God. We choose to go the other way. Holy Spirit shows up, says, you're thirsty. Now what we do a lot of times is we stop at thirsty and we continue to try to find those things to fill the hole that we're thirsty and we're not moving in the right direction. We're thirsty, but we don't know what for. We're thirsty, but we're trying to still run to this poor relationship for for satisfaction and for our thirst to be quenched. We run to this other addiction to try to quench our thirst. But at the end of the day, we realize it doesn't work. So we can't just stop at thirst. This is the knowledge that you need more than what what you have right now. That's what thirst is. The knowledge, coming to the knowledge that you need more than what you have. And that's only found in Christ. So what happens is we get thirsty and then finally we realize it's time for me to come. So we come to Jesus in obedience. That's what he says. If you're thirsty, come. We come. And this come represents the repentant, the repentance of us. We, Father, we're so sorry. We've been trying to quench our thirst elsewhere. We come to you. We come to you in repentance. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us hope. That's the coming part. So that's the second part of the process. Now the third part of the process is drinking Drinking is the continual obedience of following the Holy Spirit. That's what drinking is. We are continuing to obey God's word and seeking the Spirit and not ourselves. That's what he's saying. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Come and drink. Because this water actually satisfies. It's not a Coke. It's not a Dr. Pepper. This will actually quench your spiritual thirst. So thirst, come and drink. And being obedient and going to drink, this is what helps us grow spiritually and helps us go for the gospel is when we're drinking from the rivers of living water, which is what his cry is. If anyone is thirst, let him come to me and drink because as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What he's doing here is he is, Jesus is summarizing a whole bunch of the Old Testament passages that point to, that point to him as the source and points to the, the inward work of the Holy Spirit being rivers of living water flowing from within us. So we receive rivers of living water from him and it flows outwards. That's what Jesus is saying. He's summarizing a whole bunch of Old Testament passages that talk about rivers of living water. And it goes on to say, it goes on to say, he said, he said this about the Spirit. whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What the heck does that mean? 
what Jesus is saying, or what the scriptures are saying, rather, right here, is that the Spirit had not been given in its full capacity to Christians. It's not saying that the Spirit had not been given. We see the Spirit involved in creation. We see him involved in the Exodus. We see him involved all over the place in the Old Testament. What it's saying is the Spirit was not yet available in its full capacity to Christians because Christ had not been glorified. Him being glorified means he was crucified and he was resurrected. Christ hadn't completed what he was here to do. But the good news is, for us, is that he has. Very few people in the Old Testament had access to this Holy Spirit. Very few people. But now Jesus makes it available to all who come and believe in him. Is that not remarkable? That you have Moses and John, only a handful of people had access to this Holy Spirit. And now every single person who professes faith and lives it out has access to that same spirit. That is beautiful to me. If that doesn't jack you up, I don't know what will. And in, in John 4, I don't know if you guys remember the woman at the well, Jesus invites her to partake of this living water. He invites her to join this, and she's missing the point too. And then she comes back to it and says, oh, now I know what you're talking about. And then she goes and tells everybody. The, river, the flow of water was poured into her, and it flowed outward. When it was poured into her, she flowed into other people. That's what took place. As soon as she realized what was taking place, she went out and got people. That's kind of the concept of rivers of living water being poured in and it flowing out from from our hearts. So with all that said, that's 37 through 39, church. We're done today. Just kidding. Saw some of you like, oh, all right. No, we're not quite done because this is the the process and the promise of the Holy Spirit. But our church has, the American church has not done a very good job of explaining who the Holy Spirit is what he does, and how we know if we're experiencing and encountering him on a day-to-day basis. So I want to spend the rest of my time with you guys discussing that. Who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? I gave you a clue just in that sentence alone. A lot of times we think the Spirit is this mystical, superstitious force that we're waiting to see something powerful from him or something, something tangible from him He's not, a, he's not a mystical force because the Bible says that he can be grieved. It says that we can consult him. It says he convicts. So the spirit is not a mystical force. He's a person. So many times we refer to the spirit as an it and not a he. He's God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to dizzy everybody with the doctrine of the Trinity today. I'm sure that will come in the later weeks. My focus today is on the Holy Spirit because I, feel, I genuinely feel like he is the most neglected person in the whole world and the whole world of believers at that. So who is this Holy Spirit? Tim Keller, he's a uh, pastor in New York, um, love a lot of his books, he's a stud. Um, It says, one thing that he described as the Trinity, or as the Spirit, he says, the Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian heart. Mmm, I like that. The personal divine resident of the Christian heart. So we have this personal, yet divine resident within our hearts because the Bible says that he does dwell within our hearts. Now, Tim Keller's definition is awesome. It's completely and totally awesome, but I think Jesus's words are a little bit better. If you have your Bible, go to John 14. John 14. We're going to read verses 15 and 16. When you get there, say hallelujah. Praise God, you guys are fast. 
My goodness. If you're not there, it's going to be up on the screen. John 14, 15 through 16. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another. Somebody say another. I will, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So right off the bat, Jesus is telling us who the Holy Spirit is. He's a helper. He's the spirit of truth. He is life. My version, my ESV version right here says helper, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the first thing I want you guys to understand and see, and I'm, we're going to be talking a little bit about Greek today because the whole, the, the whole New Testament was written in Greek in the original language. So when I say the Greek word, I'm not just trying to impress you. I'm just trying to show you how the, how the text should naturally read for us and what it really means because sometimes translations fail us a little bit um, by getting to the depth of what's taking place. It says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another Another. There are two Greek words for the word another. Two. The first one is heteros. Somebody say heteros. Go back to your dorms, college guys, and just start, and just start speaking Greek, and you'll freak your roommates out. I promise it's going to be cool. Heteros. This word, this word for another means one of a different kind. One of a different kind. So if I say to you, or if you, if you hand me a Reese's and I say, I don't like this one, hand me a Kit Kat, because we all know Kit Kats is where it's at, right? Say, I don't, I don't like this Reese's, give me a Kit Kat. What am I saying? Give me another one of a different kind, right? You guys, you guys seeing that? Don't like Reese's, hand me a Kit Kat, I want another one. The other word for another is called alos. Somebody say alos, alos. This word alos, what this means is one of the same kind. So you hand me a Kit Kat because Kit Kats is where it's at. You hand me a Kit Kat and I say, man, that was good, hand me another one. What am I saying? One of the same kind. Guess, what, guess which one Jesus uses right here to describe the helper? Alos. He says, I will go and the Father will send somebody just like me. Just like me. In the form of a spirit to dwell in your hearts. Just think, we have all of Jesus is within our hearts. Just think about that. Jesus strategically used that word for a reason because he wanted to make it clear that he is dwelling within us. Is that not cool? Man, that's awesome. So he says, I'll send you another one of the same kind. I'll send you a helper. How many of your Bibles have a different translation for that instead of helper? Somebody shout out what your version says. Counselor, advocate, redeemer, paraclete, comforter. You know what that tells us? that there's so many different words for who the Holy Spirit is. Once again, the Greek word is parakleo, and there is no English word to accurately, fully describe who the Spirit is. We have no English word for it. The, the word, it means, it means that you're consumed with it. It means that he's right there with you, beside you, behind you, in front of you. It means that he is everything to you as a believer. We have no English word rich enough to describe the Holy Spirit. We have no words. Is, not, is, is that awesome? That he is so rich and he is so good that we can barely describe who he is. The question is, well, is he a helper? Is he an advocate? Is he a comforter? Is he a counselor? Is he a redeemer? Is he a paraclete? What is he? The answer is yes. The answer is simply yes. Because he's all the above. 
My personal favorite is the term advocate, and I'll explain why. I mean, divine comforter, I mean, that's nice, but it makes him sound like a divine quilt. (laughs) I like advocate, and I'll explain to you why here in just a second. So what else, who, who else is he? Personal divine resident of the heart, he's our helper, he's our advocate, he's our counselor, he's our redeemer, he's also life. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead. We are, we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And the Holy Spirit is the one that brings life. If you're dead, is there anything you can do to come back to life? No, you can't revive yourself. It takes the Holy Spirit to come in and revive every part of you. And not only are you revived, but you're, the old self is dead. You're revived as a new person by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the spirit is life. He is the very spirit that sustains our spiritual life. All through the Bible, let's go to Psalm 1 if you have your Bibles. Go to Psalm 1. This is a fun passage. Psalm 1-3. All over in the Bible, we see the spirit referred to as rivers of living water, streams of, streams of water, and we draw from the wells of salvation as Isaiah puts it. There's this concept about water that we just can't get away from. In Psalm 3, it says, This is talking about the blessed man who is following the Spirit. It says, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that that he does, he prospers. Now, that's not talking about prosperity gospel. That's talking about you will spiritually prosper. You will spiritually come to life. You are a completely new person. The old things, you're not, you don't desire the old things anymore. You may be tempted with them, but you don't desire them anymore. You are a new person walking full of the Holy Spirit. And it says, we are like a tree. I don't mean to sound too hippie, but we're like trees. That's what he's saying. He's like, you are like a tree planted by the streams of water. You know what's interesting? If a tree is planted by a stream of water, it will flourish, even in the midst of a drought. Let that sink in for a second. If a tree is planted by a stream of water, it will still thrive even in a drought. So when we say things like, I'm in a dry season, I'm in the wilderness, the Bible, when we think of the word wilderness, we think of like forest, but no, the wilderness is actually a dried up desert. So when we say things like, I'm going through the wilderness, I'm in a dry season, I just can't, I'm in a spiritual drought. If you're connected to the Holy Spirit and you're not suppressing him, but you're allowing him to work in your lives, you will still thrive and even bear fruit in the midst of your wilderness. Is that not good news? Does that not give you a hope? My gosh. This guy's awesome. So streams of living water. So trees by streams, they bear fruit. And just think when, when in the ancient times, when, they would, when nomads would travel around, where would they try to make their home? By a stream of water. Not by a stagnant pond, but by a flowing water. I was telling first service that Jesus is the source. We receive from him. We're to be a reservoir that flows outward. We're not to be a stagnant pond. A tree by a pond will eventually wither up and die, just like the bush in the desert. But when you have a constant stream of flowing water flowing, you will still live. You will make it. We're not meant to be stagnant ponds. We're meant to be rivers of living water. Does that make sense? I thought it did. So he's life, and the, old, the, the whole concept of water is life. When you're flying in the air and you look down when you're in a plane, not that you guys have wings or anything, I was meaning in a plane. 
when you're flying on a plane and you look out the window, you see brown and you know that there's no water. You see green because you know there's life. Where there's no water, there's no life. Where there is no spiritual living water, there is no spiritual life. Please, please remember that as we continue. So he's the helper. He's the advocate. He's the life. And he's also the author of scripture. He's the author of scripture. He makes the word come alive to us. How many of you guys have ever been reading the Bible and you're like, man, that verse, that's tweetable. How many of you guys have been like, that's good, I gotta put that on Twitter? Or you, you gotta go tell somebody about what you just read and what God showed you. You guys ever been, anybody, show of hands, how many of you guys have had that type of experience reading the scripture where you're like, my gosh, that is amazing. That's because this Holy Spirit is the author of scripture and he makes it come alive to us. He makes it come alive. So when we're viewing scripture through the lens of the spirit, we will see life out of it. But when we're viewing scripture through the lens of our flesh, it seems like a boring, dull book. Can I be honest and say that? Have you guys ever had times where you're like, man, this thing's boring? Let's be honest, this is church. I mean, you get to Genesis and it's like, boom, creation and all this awesome stuff. And then you get to Leviticus, sometimes it's like drinking sand. And you have to reread some of the stuff. Moses did what? David did what to who? We have to view scripture through the lens of the Holy Spirit and not through the lens of our flesh. The word will not come to life in your life if you're not viewing it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you guys a story about a, a young girl who was in our youth ministry. We were going through the passages in the book of John. And she was searching for the Spirit. She was searching for God. At the time, she wasn't, a, she wasn't really a believer. She was searching. But as she searched, the Spirit showed up. We were teaching one part of John or one, to, one part of a book, I don't necessarily remember if it was John, but we were reading one part of the book and her eyes went to another passage and she said her heart goes, Whoosh. church, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. When we read scripture and we're seeking truth, it will give life. It is alive and it is active today. That's what the scripture says. The question is, do we live like we believe that? It comes alive as we read. And there's two reasons why either the scripture is not coming alive. One, either we're not saved, or two, we're suppressing the spirit and not really wanting it to make a change because the change hurts. Jesus talks about trimming the hedges. Do you think those trees like being trimmed? Ouch. So he's the author of scripture. Is it, is it, is it not amazing that the same spirit that was involved in creation, that the same spirit that provided and sustained the Israelites in the wilderness, the whole point of this Feast of Booths that Jesus is, is attending, that the same spirit that went into the grave and brought our Savior to life, resurrected him, that same spirit lives in you and me as Christians. Does that not blow your mind? If it doesn't blow your mind, then that's called suppressing it. We have to evaluate where we are on that. Not only does it make the word come alive, but it helps us interpret scripture. How many of you guys have read like one passage and been like, I've gotten like 10 different things from this passage. The scripture helps you, or the spirit helps you interpret the scripture. Who better to go to for interpretation than the one who wrote it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm so guilty of this. Like the, the people... Brandon, Billy, and Sean, and, and Joey, they all make fun of me when I go into the office because I always walk in with like a commentaries, you know, walking in the office, and when you go into my office, there's like a wall of books. I am so guilty of going to a scholar first than I am the spirit. I'm so guilty of that. 
What we tend to do is we see a biblical issue such as speaking in tongues or cannot lose my salvation. What we do is we go Google it of somebody who we trust theologically. And that's okay and we can do that, but we have to remember that the very first person we need to consult about interpretation is the Holy Spirit himself. That was something he taught me this past week. I'm sitting there going, what did D.A. Carson and Tim Keller and, and all these other guys, what did they say about John? What did Leon Morris say about John? You guys are thinking, who? It's a bunch of dead guys, mostly. What do these guys say about scripture? I'm so guilty of going to scholar than, than, the, than the actual source, than the actual spirit. If you want the word to come alive and you want it to speak to you, then you need to first speak to the spirit about what you're reading. It's only the spirit that will accurately interpret it. We can fall short. He doesn't. That's the promise of scripture. So that's who the spirit is. He's, he's our advocate. That's the word I like. He's our life. He is truth. He's the author of scripture. So what does he do? What does he do? What is so great about what the spirit does? Interesting enough, interestingly enough, who he is is what he does. That word advocate, like I said, that's my, that's my favorite word because what it is is it's a, it's a term that's used in, in legal court systems and in, in a legal term is, what, is, is all it is. What it means is he's gonna argue with you. He's gonna argue for you. He's going to argue against your flesh. He is pleading your case at the depths of your heart. That's what he's doing. He's in there arguing, saying, no, no sin. You're not going to have this one. And then you obey that spirit and walk it out. How good is an advocate if you don't listen to the counsel? You know what I'm saying? How good would that be? Do I have anybody in here who's in, in, majoring in like a law or um, criminal justice background? Let's see a couple of hands. Would it do you any good to counsel somebody and then not listen to you? Absolutely not. That's what the Spirit does. He advocates for us. Jesus, 1 John says that Jesus is our advocate in heaven. He's up there going, Father God, look, I've paid the price. They're innocent. The price has been paid. He's our advocate in heaven. Holy Spirit is our advocate here on earth and within our hearts. That's the nature of it. So Jesus goes, sends someone just like himself to do what he was doing here on earth, but only within our hearts. The advocate is in the deepest rooted parts of your heart, battling those deepest things that maybe nobody else knows about. Those things you do behind closed doors that nobody knows about. He's advocating against those things. He wants to help you live a new life. He wants to help you live a new life. This means he dwells where those issues happen. Do you guys know that word dwell? You know what that means? It means that it make, he's taking up permanent residence. That's what the word dwell means, to take up permanent residence. Now, if Jesus, he's not here temporarily. He's here to stay in our hearts. He's here to stay. If Jesus was going to only send him temporarily, he would have said something like, oh, I'm going to send the Spirit for a temporary short period of time, or I'm going to have the Spirit sojourn just a temporarily but no, Jesus specifically chose the word dwell to take up permanent residence deep within our hearts. I think that's good news. But what usually happens, the Holy Spirit works inward, but usually what happens is that we look for outward displays of power and majesty. We say, we're not gonna step until I see something happen. The problem is with that, mostly the Spirit doesn't work outward in powerful manifestation ways. He works inward. He's working on you inwardly. He's not... He's not going to display powerful, majestic wonders for you all day long 
causing you to step. No, no, what he does inward causes you to step with him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're looking for something outward, but he's inward. And we're looking outward, and he's inward. What we're doing is we're still suppressing it. First Thessalonians says that we can suppress, we can quench the spirit. Are we doing that today? In Ephesians, this is an interesting passage in Ephesians. Ephesians 3. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus. What is the church? It is the body of believers. So he's writing to a group of believers, but he says something really interesting. He says, church of Ephesus, I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts. And he goes on talking about being firmly rooted. There's that gardening language again, rooted, tree, rivers. You know, that's always consistent in scripture. Rooted in the spirit. Rooted in such a way that you will experience the fullness of God. That's his prayer for believers. Why is he writing that to believers? Why is he saying, I wish, I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts? As Christians, Christ already dwells in our hearts, yes? Why is he, why is he saying that to a, a group of believers? Because it's one thing to know that Jesus dwells in our hearts. It's another thing to experience it and encounter him. It's another thing to experience and encounter him. That's what he's saying. He's like, I pray that you will know the fullness of God within you. That fullness is that spirit within us that convicts us, that tells us that what we're doing is not the best, that there's something better. And oftentimes scripture is, or the spirit does other legal terms. He witnesses for us. He testifies for us. He points back to the father and Jesus saying, look what they've done for you. That's why I'm here to strengthen you so that you can bear a reflection of that so that you can be a stream of living water flowing out so that people will see the fruit coming up out of the ground and say, hey, I'm walking in dry land over here, but they've got fruit, that's where I'm going. Does that make sense? That's the streams of living water. Which leads me to the next point. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. In Romans, it talks about how the Spirit will intercede. How many of you guys have needed some intercession at some point in time from somebody? Whether you asked for it or not. (laughs) Maybe you were doing something wrong and somebody butted in and said, hey, you're doing it wrong. Doesn't that tick you off? Sometimes when, when like you're doing something like, hey, that's not the right way to do it, they just kind of poke and prod. Sometimes the Spirit is like that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can be seeming like an annoyance because he's not okay with letting, letting us settle. He's not okay with letting us settle for less when God has way more. So he intercedes. I need intercession all the stinking time, especially at home. My wife, when she reads our books to our kids, she does it with such enthusiasm and energy. It's amazing. She's like, the cow jumped over the moon. And my kids are like, yay. But when I read it, I'm like, the cow jumped over the moon. Now, Cove, the Greek word for moon, you need to listen. You know, so (laughs) I treat it like a newspaper editorial or a commentary. So my wife intercedes and she says, hey, babe, I love you. I love you, but can you try it this way? Because this is, this is gonna be a better way to, to, for our kids to understand it. Does that make sense? So that's how the spirit intercedes. I mean, when you look at my wife and you see me, you know that the spirit interceded when I asked for her number. <laughs> I'm not the cream of the crop and I'm okay with that. But the Holy Spirit will intercede. Some of you guys are taking notes going, spirit when asking for numbers. It works. I can testify to that. Hallelujah. He intercedes and he gives us that peace and joy that we'll discuss more in a minute. So he intercedes, but he also convicts. He prompts us to obey the word when we're not desiring to. 
That's where that problem, that annoyance is. He is, the Holy Spirit is your absolute best friend. How many of you guys have a friend that when you were screwing your life up at one point or another, they pulled you off to the side and said, I will not allow you to do this to yourself? Anybody have a friend like that? A good friend that will put you in, that, put you in your place when you need to? It's still up to us to listen to their advice. It's still up to us to listen to the advice. But the Holy Spirit is your best friend because he will back you into a corner and you'll, you'll get angry at him. But he's not okay with letting us mess our lives up when Christ has done so much to give us a new life. Not okay with it. So he convicts us. He doesn't condemn us. Condemnation comes from your flesh and the enemy. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Condemnation says sit and wallow in your sin. Condemnation or conviction says step in conviction. That's the difference. Conviction causes you to step closer to Christ. Condemnation allows you to sit and wallow. Which one do you want? Because we get to choose which one we follow. It's our job to walk out what the Spirit reveals. When he reveals that we're walking wrong, it's our job to walk it out. The Bible is clear that we have a human responsibility to obey God's word. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So many times we hang on either one side of the pendulum swing where some teach grace alone. That's, that's it, and that's true. That was, that was the price that it cost. It cost Christ's life for us to receive grace freely. We re- freely receive it. We freely get it. That, that's, that's, that's not the issue. But so many times over here we say, you don't have to do nothing. In the sanctification process, which is just what all sanctification is, is the Holy Spirit making you more and more like Christ. In that sanctification process, some people say, the Holy Spirit's going to do it all. You just sit back and wait. I don't think so. I don't think so. That's not biblical. But then there's also this other side of the pendulum swing where we look at things and we go, man, I got to do better. Man, I got to do better. Man, I got to do better. That too is not biblical. It's a median. The Spirit reveals to you what's going wrong and you have to take the initial, you have to take the steps in obedience. Don't wait for the Spirit to try to come and physically pull you out of your situation. The the Spirit promises to strengthen you and equip you if you're walking by Him, if you're obeying Him. There's no point in an advocate if you're not gonna listen to the counsel. So how do I know he's present? This is where we're gonna close up. I know usually when people say that when they close up, we still got about 30 minutes left, so we'll see how we do. I'm not making any promises. How do I know that he's, a, that he's present? Well, when you're saved, when you immediately come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you realize you're thirsty, you come and you drink, you automatically receive the Spirit, automatically. Some teach differently, I can't find it anywhere in scripture. You automatically receive it. However, its activity is not, or his activity is not automatic because we have the ability to either follow him or not. We can suppress him or open up and let him work. His activity is not immediate. His presence is, but his activity is not. He will intercede and he will convict and he will strengthen and he will equip and he will make you more like Christ, but you have to walk with him. That's the, that's the struggle. Paul uses terms like the spirit is waging war on the flesh. There is a war going on inside. If, if you call yourself a Christian and you do not experience that war inside, I don't think you're a Christian. There is an internal struggle that will last until we are out of sanctification and into glorification with Jesus. There will be that struggle, that temptation 
the good news is, is when we're obedient to it and we follow him, we will overcome. That's a promise. If you have your Bibles, go to Galatians 5. We're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to pick up in verse 16. have your Bible is going to be on the screen. How do we know he is present? We can look at some things that Paul says that make it clear whether or not we are walking by the spirit or walking by the flesh. Now, it's important before we get started in these verses, these passages are not steps to achieve. We're going to read about what it looks like to walk in the flesh and walk in the spirit. These are not steps to achieve, okay? This is not a to-do list. Rather, these are side, these are list of side effects for those who are walking in the flesh. Side effects of those who are walking in the spirit. Do not misinterpret this as a checklist. These are merely side effects. That was my first warning. Number two, this is going to hurt. How do I know that? Because it hurts me. And if this doesn't hurt, you check your pulse. So before we go into these deep scriptures, I want us as a church to quickly, just very quickly say a quick prayer. We're not closing out, so don't pack up your stuff yet. Say a quick prayer with me about these passages before we move on. Father, thank you so much for this this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Father, we know that the Galatian church looks a lot like our American church today. We know that. So Father, as we read these things, convict us, but convict us in such a way that leads us to step towards you, not away from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that was necessary because you're going to feel some emotions coming up here. You're going to get angry. You're going to get angry when I read some of these things. You might. But it's important, church, that we remember to channel this anger in the right direction. What I'm reading, there is no such thing as the book of second opinions. Okay? This is not the book of Cody. This is not the book of Brandon. This is God's word. And if your beliefs don't align with God's word, then you need to change your beliefs. So our anger channeled in the right direction will not be channeled at me. I'm a, you want to be angry at me, that's fine. But you can take it up with the scripture and take it up with the spirit. But your anger channeled in the right direction is to be anger towards your flesh. Because that shows you're making progress. That shows that you're waging war on the battles within. So with that said, let's read these, these intense passages. Lord, help us. It says in verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. Freedom not to do whatever we want, church, but from doing whatever we want. Not to do whatever we want, from doing whatever we want. Keep that in mind. That's what he's saying. You have been set free from your sin. Do not submit that yoke, do not submit to the yoke again. Do not put that weight on your shoulders. There's no need for you to because there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. You don't have to live that way anymore is what he's saying. You have been set free. Scrolling down to verse 16, you might need to flip a page. Verse 16, it says, but I say, walk by the what? Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. That's a promise, church. That is not a suggestion. That is not an assumption. That is not a, well, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. That's a promise from the apostle Paul that if we walk by the spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. Are we all in an agreement? Okay, now that we're in agreement, we can move on. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you what? Want to do. The things that we want to do, not good for us. 
Jesus says it, Paul says it, that's good enough for me. And I know it in my own life that the things that I want to do are not naturally good. It's all bringing back the focus to me. It may be good things, but only for me to get glory. So what he's saying is that war that's taking place. Church, do you recognize a war taking place within you this morning? Because as we read, I hope you do. It says in verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, the Greek word is pornea. It encompasses everything that's sexually impure. Adultery, lust, pornography all-encompassing word. Church, we cannot live in sexual immorality and say we're walking by the Spirit. We cannot be cheating on our spouse and say we're walking by the Spirit. We cannot be clicking on pornography every five minutes or every time we're alone and say we're walking by the Spirit. We can't. Because it says if you're walking by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. We will not do it goes on to say impurity anything that defiles you we cannot we cannot engage in all the gossip and all the slander and all the bullying and say that we're walking by the spirit that does not reflect the character of christ goes on to say idolatry and sensuality and idolatry idolatry anything you put before god if you say if you spend more time with sports than you do the spirit not walking by the spirit if you're spending more time at work than you do with christ not walking in the spirit Anything you put before your relationship with God indicates that you are not walking by the Spirit. This is why it's important to come daily and drink, come daily and repent, come daily and pray for the Holy Spirit because we will not gratify the desires if we're consistently walking with the Spirit. Now say you won't struggle with these things. That's not what I said because there is a war and where there's war, there's a struggle. What I'm saying is that you have the power to overcome by the Spirit. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, that's a big one, fits of anger. These next three are categorized as essential divisions. It says dissensions, divisions, and rivalries. We cannot be politically corrupt and say we're walking with the Spirit. We cannot be racist and say that we're walking by the Spirit. We cannot be theologically off base all the time and say we're walking with the Spirit. This is encompassing racial, political, theological. A main, a main theme in the book, actually in the whole Bible, is unity amongst the believers. That's going to cause you to tear down some walls of separation from those who you were divided with. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, this word orgies. We tend to think of it as simply a sexual thing. But in fact, the Greek, the best translation we have of this, because the Bible's written in the Greek, the best translation we have, this is where college students you'll need to listen up, means wild parties. That's the best translation. Maybe your translation says that. Wild parties. We cannot live that lifestyle and say that we're Christians living by the Spirit. Why? Because there is no difference in them those non-believers, and us. We are to set a tone. We are to raise the standard. We are to have rivers of living water flowing with that, from, from out of us so that people can see the fruit popping up out of the ground, fruit bearing on the tree and saying, I'm over here in the desert starving, but they've got something worth having. 
when we're walking by the flesh, there is no difference in us and those who don't believe. In fact, that's what's driving more and more people away from the church. We can all categorize ourselves underneath one of these things. So none of us in here are innocent. Nobody. Goes on to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's where the hope comes in. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And whoever belongs to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in what? Step with the Spirit. You may be able to experience joy, faithfulness here and there a little bit, but it all comes and goes. This type of, of love, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness only comes from God. That's what, the word, that's what the text is describing. A type of love that only comes from God. A type of joy that only comes from God. A type of faithfulness that only comes from God. He's offering you the opportunity of forgiveness so that you could then forgive others who are, who are sending these things against you. Some of us are in a relationship where we've been cheated on. In marriage, the most common right, right now, the leading cause of divorce right now is adultery. Leading cause. In the Bible, Jesus says, grounds for divorce, right? We read that in the book of Matthew. But let me tell you, church, it's also grounds for forgiveness. When we've been sinned against, we have to remember that we sinned against God and that God forgave us so that we may forgive others. I just want to speak to, the, to, to that group who have been experiencing some of that. Because maybe you're in here, maybe you're not. I don't know. Seek counsel. First seek the Spirit. Seek counsel. And just continue to bathe your situation in prayer. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself says, try to settle it before you even get to the courts. Settling it means resolving it. Now some things... Like I said, I'm not, I'm not a professional counselor, but I do know that where there is sin, it's opportunity for forgiveness. That's what I do know. And you say, Cody, you don't know my story. You don't know my life. You don't know my situation. It's not what I know. It's what the Spirit knows. It's what the Spirit wants to do. It has nothing to do with me up here just talking about it. This is the Spirit saying, you've been forgiven that you may forgive. Because all of us can encompass ourselves underneath one of these issues. You guys still with me? So what then? You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Jeremiah 2, it says, For many people have committed two evils. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the what? Fountain of living water, and hewed out of their cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's saying they have committed two evils. God is saying evils by not walking with a spirit that's been so graciously given to him. I'm guilty. You're guilty. That's why we need to thirst come daily. Paul says we have to die daily. That means coming daily to the, to the throne of God saying, God, help me today. Help me walk in the spirit. Not just when situations are bad. All day, every day. Walk by the spirit. You will not gratify the desires of your flesh. That is a promise of scripture. And this promise is true. So it takes us back to thirsty, come and drink in John 7, 37 through 39. Talk to the believers. Believers, what are you drinking? Where are you drinking it from? 
Are you suppressing the spirit? Number two, I wanna to talk to those who may be in here giving Jesus, maybe giving church, maybe giving God your last chance. Are you truly partaking of the living waters? Have you, have you said yes to Jesus's invitation for this living water? Have you said yes? Maybe you've gone through the church rituals of, oh, I said a prayer once, but my life never really changed. If you've said, if you've, if you've said that you've received Christ, but nothing has ever changed, I'm not sure that's saving faith. It's not my job to judge people's faith, but you can judge a tree by its fruit. The Bible says that. If you feel like in your heart, you're, you may be, your heart may be bouncing 90 miles an hour right now, and you may be fidgety, looking around. If, you're, if you feel like you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus and you say, today is the day, I want this living water, I realize that nothing I've been drinking is quenching my thirst. If this is you and you say yes, we're just gonna ask that you stand so that we can just celebrate with you. If that's you and you're here today, just go ahead and stand and we'll celebrate with you. I'm just gonna give you a couple seconds. Okay, that's good. Means a lot of us in here means that we're, we are professing believers, but my question remains, what are we drinking and where are we drinking it from? Does your lifestyle reflect that of somebody who is walking by the spirit and not by the flesh? If today you need to come and you need to drink and you need to pray and you need to repent and you need to say, I'm serious. I'm done gratifying desires of the flesh because I now know that scripture says I can overcome if I truly hold on and walk by the spirit. We're just gonna play some music lightly and if you wanna come, come pray. Start making your moves while I'm praying and then after I pray, those of you who feel like you don't need prayer or, or you're ready to go, then just please exit quietly. But we're just gonna open up this front area. Just come before the Lord and drink. So if that's you and you need prayer, just go ahead and make your way forward as I pray, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for sending the Spirit. Thank you for not leading us to thirst in the wilderness, but providing us a drink that will satisfy us. Father, we give thanks for everything. Thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for your Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.